In early 1900s, G.K. Chesterton wrote, and I read, Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part that he ought not to doubt, the divine revelation. In today's society, perhaps like any other moment in history, to doubt God's words is presented as humble. A skepticism about divine truth is celebrated and encouraged. It is viewed as humble, in quote, to be doubtful about the authority of the Bible. Sin is tolerated, and pluralism is worship. To speak of truth, judgment, and salvation in Christ alone is viewed as arrogant and harsh. Christians are constantly pressured to be tolerant of things that God condemns. But let's make a parenthesis here, especially for those of us who can be too pessimistic about the future. Unregenerate people are as, as skeptic of the gospel today as they were 100 years ago. Nominal Christian 50 years ago in the South, a nominal Christian 50 years ago in the South was as far from God as the atheists that we find today in the universities. And the hope and the solution that we had 100 years ago, the same that we have today, the gospel of Christ. The church in Thyatira was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ for its permissive spirit of idolatrous compromise. And the church is exhorted to overcome that, to overcome that sinful tolerance in order not to be judged. God is a merciful God. So he calls us to repent of our sins. He calls us to obey him and to reject evil. Think about that. Christians are called to do something greater than just tolerance. If we make tolerance, in quote, our goal, we will be setting the bar too slow. Christ does not call us to tolerate our enemy. He calls us to love our enemies. And love compels us to confront sin and to defend the truth. And that is what the church here failed to do. For those of you who take note, I have four points that I want to share with you today. Four points that I want to share with you. I will ask you to keep your Bible open. If you're using one of those, these Bibles, you will find the text in page 1029, 1029. You will find the text that we'll be studying tonight that was just read to us. So keep your Bible open as I will be referencing Revelation to chapter, verses 18 to 29. So four points. First one, Christ is fearsome and powerful. First, Christ is fearsome and powerful. How do you think of Christ? And that's a question. How do you think of Christ? Do you think just as him as the sweet savior, the kind and humble man who walked in Jerusalem in the first century? Do you ever think of him as a lion? as the king of the universe. 
think about these people who received this letter from John in the first century in Asia. Imagine those seven churches as they heard the vision of John about Christ. Some of them perhaps even walked with Christ in Jerusalem. Some of them saw him as he taught in the synagogues. Some of them maybe walked with him. Maybe they ate and drank with him. But John, the apostle, now shares this vision, this image of Christ, of the glorified Lord. He's fearsome. He has a sword in his mouth, eyes like a flame of fire, and feet like a burnished bronze. Perhaps many of them needed this vision. And perhaps some of us need this vision of Christ so that we can understand that when he was in the womb, he was still sustaining the universe in his hands. That when he, as a baby, was held by Mary, he was holding her. That he, even when he became human, he was still the Lord of the universe. We need to think of Christ in those terms. Indeed, he is the sweet Savior but he's also the powerful judge of the universe. Look at verse 18. He says, the words of the Son of God. This is the only part in the book of Revelation where the expression, the Son of God, is used. Here we have a clear allusion to Psalm 2. The letter, this part of the letter opens with reference to Psalm 2 and closes with a reference also and a quote from Psalms 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's the psalm that Peter quotes about Christ in Acts 4. Here we have the title, Son of God. And in verses 26 and 27 here in the text, we read a quote from Psalm 2. It says, To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Here we have also echo, allusions to Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, where the Son of Man is described as having, I quote, eyes like flaming torches and feet like polished bronze. So many times we miss that because we think of the context of the book of Revelation as the newspaper. So we're trying to find the newspaper the meaning of these words. But the problem is the meanings of these words are found in the Old Testament. Because that was the Bible. That's what they had, the Old Testament. So John is assuming that when he's describing Christ, they will understand it because they were familiar with the Old Testament. The problem is that we sometimes don't read the Old Testament as much as we should read it. And then we try to go to the newspaper, helicopters, those kind of things, to find the meaning of what is being said here. But it's basically saying that that was announced, the great Messiah, the Lord, that was promised in the Old Testament is the one who came and walked among us and is the one now who is addressing you. As Greg Beale observes, the combination of Psalm 2 with allusion to Daniel 7 and 10 emphasizes the theme of judgment, which is the primary function of the Son of God in Psalm 2. At the same time, the title is also a contrast with the local trade deity Apollo and the divine emperor, Divine in quote. 
both of them who were referred as sons of Zeus. That's in the context of the church, right? The reader must give their exclusive adoration to Jesus and trust him for the economic welfare, since he alone is the true son of God. See also verse 23. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I repeat, I am he, this is Christ speaking, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. He is the sovereign Lord. He knows everything. He knew what was happening inside the church. He knows whatever happens inside Christ's covenant church. He even knows what we're thinking right now. Isn't that amazing? And sobering at the same time. He knows our thoughts. He is the loving Savior, but he will also crush his enemies with his feet of bronze. I love how Psalm 2 ends. He says, and I read Psalm 2, He's the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are who take refuge in him, in the son. Who is the refuge of the people in the Old Testament? It's God himself. Who is the judge of the nations in the Old Testament? The Lord God. The point here is that he who walked among us, that he who they saw with their eyes, he who they touched with their hands, was no other than God himself. And he became human for us and our salvation. The Bible teaches that we all are sinners, that we all have sinned, that the wages of sin is death. But God is gracious and merciful, and he came in the person of his son. He became a human being. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. And the third day, he rose again, declaring victory over death. So through his death, he killed death and sin, so that we, if we trust in him, will be saved. And that is what the text is encouraging to do, to think of him as the Savior, the Lord of the universe. And I ask you, if you are here and you're not a Christian, I ask you to repent of your sin and to trust in him as your Savior. If you want to talk more about that as a member after the service, how can I become a Christian? It's just by repenting of your sin and to trust in him as your Lord. Second point, look for signs of grace. Look for signs of grace. Read verse 19, please. And he says, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This church had some serious issues. They had some serious problems. But the first thing, the first thing that the Lord says to them after introducing himself is an encouragement. And he does that with all the churches. He points out to them that which they are doing well. Before he go after them, so to speak, to confront them in the sin, 
He encouraged them in that which they are doing well. And that's what we see here. He encouraged their, their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. They were, they were growing in love, faith, servants, and patient endurance. They were loving other believers. They were save, serving other people. So many of them were growing in grace. But look here. He doesn't say that about Jezebel and her children. Jezebel and her children, they were not growing in grace. There is no word of encouragement for them. It's on, only for the believers. Those who, who were in Christ, in union with him, who were, who were growing in the grace of God. Those sinful, wicked people within the church, there's no encouragement for them. Understand something. The believers here were not doing that which Jezebel and her children were doing. But they were tolerating it. They were accepting what they were doing. They were tolerating evil and destruction. They were doing deeds of love while turning their blind eye on evil. They were showing the fruits of the Spirit while they were lacking discernment. As Tom Schreiner argues, from this we can conclude that as Christians we can be growing in some areas of our lives while we can lack other areas in our life. So we can grow here, but we need to work in this area. We have to be thoughtful and careful about this. All situations are not black and white. Here we have Christians that are growing in one area while they are decreasing in others. They're doing good services while they're tolerating evil. You can be growing in the Word, you can be growing in prayer while not serving people or mistreating others. Or you can be kind with people, you can be service in different ministries in the church while you grow cold toward God and His Word. So think about that. In what area of my life I have to work on? Where do I have to repent? Am I loving other Christians? Am I serving others? Am I loving God? Do I enjoy reading scripture? So in our lives, there can be room for thankfulness and encouragement, while at the same time there's room for repentance. And this is what the Lord is doing here. He encouraged them and he corrects them. Let me ask you a question as Christ's covenant church. When was the last time that you encouraged a brother or a sister? When was the last time that you encouraged a brother or a sister? Or are you one of those friends who only see the bad? And when you, when you approach someone, it's always to be critical? Do you thank Tom, Nick, and Daniel for their service? Do you encourage them? Or are you just waiting for Tom to close the service, to approach him to say, Tom, I did not like this about the sermon? Do you see the sample of the Lord? He confronts them with a strong language, but he also encourages those that are growing. Third point, 
Do not tolerate evil. Do not tolerate evil. The church of Thyatira is accused of giving free reign to a group of false teachers in influencing God's people to compromise with idolatrous aspects of pagan society. I don't think Jezebel, the name used here, was the name of the person in the church. It was not a common name. No one will name a child after her. Jezebel was the standard of wickedness in the northern kingdom of Israel. It is like someone naming his son Hitler after the Second World War. Nobody will do that. It will be crazy. Because the name represented evil. So the same with Jezebel. He represented the words of the Old Testament. Most likely, so the name is used as a reference to a woman who was influencing a group of people within the church. Look at that. It, it speaks of her and her children, verse 23. Who, the text says, who will be killed. It's a strong language. This is serious. So Jezebel is a symbolic name. It represents the evil of what's going on in the church. Jezebel in the Old Testament, in the, book, in the first book of Kings, she incited her husband, King Ahab, to worship Baal and led the people of Israel to idolatry and sexual immorality. If you want to read about her death, the way she was killed, she was threw for a window, and then she was eaten by dogs, you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 9. It's horrible, but it speaks of the judgment on how God will kill and judge evil. She killed hundreds of prophets. She persecuted them. She persecuted through Christians, but then God judged her. In relation to the idolatry and the fornication that was taking place among the sons of the members of the church, one of the few things that we know about the church in Thyatira is that it was a great business city. Thyatira in the first century, was a great business city. So they had all these associations. If you read Larry's email yesterday, those guilds, trade guilds, where people, all those guilds, they gathered together to, to do businesses. It was kind of a chambers of commerce. Think about that. So think about Christians attending a meeting with a few members of that church where one of those members was of the church was a wealthy and influential business owner. And those associations in the early century, they had a patron god. So they had a god. So all those guilds or associations, they had a, a patron god. So one of the leaders stand up and says, in the meeting, Chamber of Commerce, right? They're talking about business, building network about business, businesses, and one of them, the leader says, we want to recognize our great God, Zeus. He has provided this amazing meal. In the back of the room, you can see his statue covered in gold. All the meat that we are about to eat was sacrificed to him because in his honor we eat and we drink. Let's celebrate his name and the businesses that he has given us. Bon appetit. So you're a Christian. What do you do? So you're a Christian in that context, in that meeting, after what was said, what do you do? And you're sitting here 
with one of the children of Jezebel, who says to you, who's your business partner, who invited you to the meeting, don't feel uncomfortable. We as Christians are people of the heart. The heart is what matters. Don't be a fool. Don't lose the opportunity to be part of this influential business chamber. You will make a lot of money here. You can help the church with the money you will make. God knows you love him. Just eat and celebrate to Zeus. These are good people. Only Zeus. Enjoy Zeus and the wealth he has provided us. There was a member of the church who was sitting with you, who invited to this meeting, who said that to you. What will you do? And that was in the midst of the society. They didn't have to go around to find that kind of context. They were living in that context. To reject paganism will be harmful for their businesses. So what will you do? It takes faithful boldness to say, no, I worship the only true living God. Christ is my Savior and my King. It takes courage to confront your boss when he comes to you and shares some pornographic picture. It takes courage for a teenager who walk out of a party because they're drinking and smoking in high school. It takes courage for an attorney who receive a couple who want to be divorced, and he first wants to ask them some questions before proceeding with that. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage for a lady who rejects a social drink, in quote, from the owner of the company where she works. Those things will put, in, will put you in an awkward position. They will make you feel uncomfortable. But you have to be faithful. And we have to understand, because we can make a caricature of, by reading this. Oh, it's so easy. But that is why teachers like Jezebel here, where they're so popular. Because they make Christianity, in quotes, so easy. It was easy to be a Christian, so to speak. She was leading them to hell, but it was presented as just being tolerant in a tough environment. Look something else here. Note the mercy of God, even in that context. He gave them time to repent. He said, I have given them time to repent. So he has been patient, even with them. God does not judge us immediately. He could have killed them right at the moment when they were sleeping together, or at the time when those parties were having sacrifice and eating animal sacrifice to false gods. But he gives time to repent. But he will judge them. And the question is, are you holding to that sin? Are you hiding that sin? Remember, he sees everything. He has given you time to repent. But he will judge and condemn if you don't repent. He is patient, but his judgment is sure. So are you holding to that sin? If you are, please repent. 
maybe, maybe, perhaps, some of them will say, we will do it just one time. We will attend this meeting just one time. And that is the light of sin. It hardens your heart. And then you trust sin, and there's no time to come back. It's like going down slowly. You keep going, you keep going, you keep going, down and down. And your heart is hardened. Your ears are closed. You lose a spiritual sight, and then you're gone. The judgment of God has arrived. Brothers and sisters, if you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. Brother and sister, if you do not kill sin, sin will kill you. Don't play with sin. It will eat you alive. Understand something. This Jezebel and her children were confessing Christians. They were not atheists. They were not mocking Christianity. They were confessing Christians. They were part of the church. They were members. They would take communion. Unbelievers do that all the time. But these were people inside the church. So the Lord says, repent, and if not, I will destroy you. Please do not tolerate evil. Fourth point. We fight together. Fourth point and last one. We fight together. It is not surprising that John's vision is not a private encouragement given for him alone. You know, John wasn't in an island when he received this vision. So this vision of the glorified Lord is, was not something given for him just to have it. But rather, it was for the seven churches that are in Asia. And for us today. And that is the nature of God's word. He saved us to be part of a community. The local church. So that is why we don't fight fight sin alone. You know, in, in all the countries, there's cities, there are places that you don't go by yourself. I don't know, here, but let's say you are in South Africa, Johannesburg. There's a small town, a small place that you should not walk or drive by yourself. Because if you go by yourself, you will be killed. There's no way that you can drive to those places and drive back alive. Because they will eat your life. And you have places like that all over the world where you cannot walk or drive by yourself. Because they're so dangerous. And that is sin. We don't fight sin alone. We fight sin in the power of the Spirit and as a community, together. That's why God, He did not save you to be a lone ranger, to be alone, but to be part of that community. Because he knew, he knows that you need others to help you to grow, to fight sin, to see the perseverance of the saint, to see the seal of evangelism that these 18 years old have, or how this brother who's 85 is still singing and praising God. He reminds us that we will persevere, that he will hold us fast. So we need the community. 
We need other believers to help us to fight sin. So if you're fighting sin, don't do it alone. And that is why the, the Word of God, it was never meant to a particular person. It was always addressed to the community of God. Because it assumes that we will be in community, living life together. And also the text, if you see, it assumes that we'll be read to the churches because he says, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They didn't have the Bible, each one of them, but they will hear the reading of the word. So it assumes that they will hear, that they will listen to the word of God. And the only thing that all the letters that we studied the last few months have in common is that all of them close with that. The Spirit speaks, and the people listen. Let him who has ears to hear what the, people, what the Spirit of God says to the churches. That is why the Lord Jesus Christ, after sharing a parable with people, he will say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listening is in a spiritual act. Many of us, we can become deaf to sounds that challenge our pride. Or we can become deaf to commands of obedience. Or that which will interrupt our dreams and our life. We don't want to be interrupted. We don't want to be challenged. And we become deaf to those voices. Like many here in this church, we're becoming deaf to the words of the Spirit. May the Lord give us hear, ears to hear and faithfulness to conquer the battle. As a, a, a pastor puts it, a believer community is the context for the life of faith. A believer community is the context for the life of faith. So those things that you see that the Lord encouraged them in verse 19, love, Faith, sacrifice, patience, those don't take place in isolation. Love cannot exist in isolation. Grace cannot be received privately. Patience cannot develop in solitude. It's easy to be patient by living in an island, but that's not how we grow in patience. It's by living with others that will make us uncomfortable, that will interrupt us. So all the things that Christ says to them and he encouraged them are things that take place in the context of community. So he's writing to us as a church. So not, not that we will take it and then we just run with that. He said, how can I, we be challenged by that? How, where do I have to repent? And how will shape my life in the context of the church? How will this affect the way that I live with others? A pastor in Maryland, writing a, few, uh, a decade ago, he said, he wrote, and I read, it is not possible to have Christ apart from the church. We try. We would very much like to have Christ apart from the contradictions and the destruction of those other people who believe in him or say that they believe. We have excitement for God, but indifference toward the church. We would like to jump from chapter 1, you know, chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, where there's this amazing 
uh, uh, image of Christ, chapter 4 and 5, where we have this amazing view of heaven. But no, we have chapter 2 and 3. We have the church. And there's no way to go from Christ to heaven without going through the church. And not one church, but seven churches. So we have, we need the church. We cannot go from Christ to heaven without the church. And he calls us to be part of the community and to live as a local body, helping each other, loving each other. So if we fight sin and we push against lostness, we do that as a congregation. We do that as a local community under the Lordship of Christ and under the, in the power of the Spirit. To conclude, what about that morning star? What about that reward? He said, for those of you who conquer, you will receive the morning star. Let's go to Revelation 22, verse 16, just to read that. Revelation 22, verse 16. And this is how John closes the book, or the Spirit closes the book, because these are the words of the Spirit. He's, and I read, Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, has sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The reward is Christ himself. What can be better than that? So if you obey a scripture, you might not get the job promotion. If you obey a scripture and you're faithful to God, you might not get the benefit from your company that you were expecting. If you obey a scripture, you might not get accepted into the school that you were hoping. If you obey a scripture, you might not get the applause of your friends. If you're faithful to Christ, you might not get the praise of, a, of your non-Christian parents. But if you obey Christ and you obey scripture, you will get Christ. And he is our reward. And he is everything. And it is for us and our salvation that he became human. And he walked. And some of them saw him walking. And he went to the cross. And through his death, he killed death and the one who had the power of death. He is our reward. We may lose benefits. We may lose a promotion. But we have Christ. And he is all. Let's pray together.